Amen. How we doing? Glad you all are here. Our apologies to those of you who came in. We're having a hard time finding a seat while you were getting here initially, but we're glad you stuck with us. Hopefully you found a good spot. And, and please come back. We'll, we'll open this up and make more room for you. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to remind you, just to invite you, if you're new today, new anytime recently, really, come to that lunch next week. We'd love to vi- have the opportunity just to visit with you, give you the opportunity to learn more about the church. We've got a baptism Sunday coming up on February 11th, so about three weeks from today. So if you're interested in that, please let me know. We'd love to visit with you, talk with you about that. And get ready to celebrate with you on that day. Today is also my oldest son, Seth's 16th birthday. Which is uh, pretty unbelievable and incomprehensible for me and my wife as parents that we have a 16-year-old. Which means we're really old. Um, But we're excited to celebrate Seth. He has a great heart, which he gets from his mom. Great head of hair, which he gets from me. And... (laughs) We love him. We're thankful for him. Um, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And, and today, Jesus hosts the most amazing picnic in the history of the world. All right? That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, not exactly. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, it's on page 841. Let's stand together. We're just going to dive right in today. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, the Bethsaida. And while while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. 
do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the, to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we pray uh, that we would see your love and your abundant provision of grace um, and mercy for us in, in this account that we, we study today. Lord, would you help us to see with new eyes this story that may be familiar to many of us in a way that, that leads us to greater faith, greater dependence upon you, greater trust to step out when things seem impossible and know that you are at work in and through us. Lord, would you have your way in us today? Grow us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So the feeding of of the 5,000, right, is one of these familiar passages, at least for many of us. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you probably, even if you haven't been, you may know this story. And it it, it can seem to us, because of the the familiarity that we have, maybe possibly because of the way you were taught in in Sunday school, uh, you learned it uh, as a kid, it can seem like this is just like one of those warm, fuzzy kind of stories, right? It's it's just like this, this big picnic that Jesus is hosting, right? You can almost imagine in your brains the, uh, the, the red checkered tablecloth just spread out on the ground. Everybody's just sitting in the green grass having a picnic with Jesus. And, and it may seem that way to you, but I want to encourage you to immediately get that visual out of your brain as much as you can, because that's not what this passage is about really at all. It's important that we understand like the textual and the, the, and the, uh, the, you know, and the historical context here. In, in verse 30, it says the apostles, that's the 12 disciples who had been sent out by Jesus earlier in chapter uh, 6 of, of Mark's gospel here. They, they were sent out two by two on mission, and now they're coming back. They're coming back to Jesus. They're, they're sharing about their, their story, and they, they've come back. They've had some fruitful ministry. They've, they've taught some things. They've done some things. Uh, probably some miraculous things were done through them as Jesus gave them kind of his, his authority and power through them was kind of manifested in them as they went. Uh, and we know this because it says that something happened that was good because it says lots of people are coming and going, right? So much so that they can't even find time to get something to eat. They're tired. They're hungry. They, they've been working really hard at, at this mission that Jesus has sent them on. And so Jesus invites them, come away with me to a desolate place and we'll find some rest for a while. Let's rest for a while. And, and there's, there's a big emphasis here. Like, so they get in the boat, they go to a, where? A desolate place. You'll see that repeated through this passage. It, it, it really focuses on the location. A desolate place, right? What's a desolate place? That's an uninhabited place, a wilderness place. And God providing rest for his people in the wilderness is a recurring theme that we see throughout the whole scope of the Bible, right? Uh, but rest doesn't appear to be in the cards on this day, 
right? Because the crowd that the disciples have kind of drawn around them, not only the crowd that was drawn to Jesus, but now the disciples have drawn a crowd with Jesus's crowd. And, and they kind of see them and they see where the boat's going and they follow on land. And we don't know how it works out. Maybe the wind was going against them or whatever, but these folks actually kind of beat them to the spot that they're going, to the desolate, uninhabited, quiet place in the wilderness. Now there is an immense crowd now, this is not a, a heavily populated area, right? We, we've been looking at some things. We, we've heard these, these towns, uh, the bigger towns in the region already mentioned in, in Jesus' ministry here in Mark, Capernaum, Bethsaida. Well, those towns, those two towns combined were probably two of the bigger ones in the region. They maybe only had about 5,000 people combined in those towns. But we're told in verse 44 that there were 5,000 men in this crowd. Heads of households. It does not count all the women and children. So most commentators will tell you it's very likely that this crowd was more like fifteen to 20,000 people in attendance in the wilderness. Right out here in the middle of nowhere. Where are all these people coming from? Well, surely many of them came from the surrounding towns. But, you know, the remote and the rural regions were also the hotbed of the revolutionary resistance against Roman imperial rule. Right out in the hill country is where you'd find the freedom fighters hiding out. This is the place of the zealots and everyone who's sympathetic to their, their cause and their movement. And the zealots stood for the violent overthrow of Roman rule. And John, in his gospel account of this incident, he comes right out and says it. Mark just kind of hints at it here. But John is very explicit about this crowd and their anticipation of who Jesus is and what they want to do with him and what they are thinking about. Right? It says in John six fifteen, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. This isn't some cute little picnic out in the woods here. It's a revolution. It's a revolution that's going on. This is a place where everyone wants a revolutionary leader. And Jesus shows up and they're like, you're the guy. We're going to make you that leader. We, why? Because they want a revolution. They want liberation from this oppressive rule. And right before this account, we have the account of Herod, right? Having John the Baptist murdered. Jesse preached on that for us last week. And you see in that just like a, a typification, like a, a demonstration of kind of the oppression that, that the folks are living under. No wonder they want a true and better king. No wonder they want a revolution. And Jesus comes and they want to make him that king right there. They want him to be their revolutionary leader. They want a revolution. That's what they're after. And they're going to get one, but just not exactly the revolution that they're thinking they want in the way that they want it. Mark shows us in this passage the, the unexpected revolution of Jesus. Right? The unexpected revolution of Jesus. Jesus and the disciples arrive. They're greeted by this great crowd. They're tired. They're hungry. They're looking for rest. This crowd has an agenda for Jesus. Uh, right? Uh, how does Jesus respond? How is Jesus going to respond? He, they're tired. They're hungry. Right? They have an agenda for him that's not his own agenda. It's going to say, hey, uh, sorry, I have a nice little Saturday planned here. You're going to need to make an appointment later in the week. Could you come back? Uh, give me a call a little bit later. Like, uh, you know, does he seem annoyed? Right? No, does he tell him, come back tomorrow? No, look at his response, verse 34. Verse 34. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them, 
many things. Jesus responds with compassion, with compassion. But this isn't just any compassion. This, this word, this Greek word that's used here of compassion, uh, is translated as compassion, is only used to describe Jesus in all of the New Testament. This is a unique compassion to him. This is, this is a far deeper compassion than any kind of human concern or empathy we might feel for someone. But this is much deeper than that. Uh, but it is the compassion, uh, 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 the comparison of the crowd uh, of people with sheep without a shepherd that is truly striking. That comparison, that the crowd are like sheep without a shepherd. This is a significant phrase here. An intentional phrase that Mark's using, an intentional phrase that Jesus says to his disciples. That's, that's where it comes from, right? Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is actually alluding to a number of passages throughout the Old Testament. In particular, Numbers 27, verse 17, where Moses is at that point praying that the Lord would provide and appoint a leader to take his place prior to, to his death in the wilderness, that the people, he says in that prayer, may, be not, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's Moses' prayer. It's also noteworthy that the shepherd that God provides in answer to, to Moses' prayer there is, is Joshua, right? Joshua, whose name in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is what? Jesus. Same name, Jesus. In Ezekiel 34, 5. Also, the prophet there speaks of people being without a shepherd, but God promises through the prophet a faithful shepherd, my servant David. Now, this isn't talking about King David. This is long after King David, right? Who will feed them and be their shepherd, and he will establish a covenant of peace, causing the people to dwell securely in the wilderness. Now, in the New Testament, the common understanding we have when we hear the word shepherd, it, it, we, we understand it as like having these pastoral uh, connotations, and, and that's, that's right, that we should get that from the New Testament, right? The shepherd loves his sheep. The shepherd cares for his sheep. The shepherd feeds his sheep. Uh, but these references in the Old Testament often were not so much focused on the kind of pastoral understanding as much as they were focused on the need for a political, military kind of leader. And when Jesus says that they were like sheep without a shepherd, he knows exactly what they are wanting from him. He knows that they're wanting him to be their revolutionary leader, to, to be the one who will liberate them from their oppression. He understands this. And Mark is making it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. He is the second Moses who, who has been appointed by God to be their leader in the wilderness, to feed them in the wilderness, to lead them in the ultimate exodus. He, he is the true and better David who has come to provide rest for his people in the wilderness. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd king. That's who he is. But not in the way that the people expect. Not in the way that they expect. At the end of verse 34, Mark tells us that Jesus looks on the crowd with compassion. He understands what they want for him to be for them. And then he begins to do what? To teach them. To teach them. To preach the gospel to them. He begins preaching his gospel and teaching them. That's his response. They're expecting Jesus to come in and start passing out weapons and start having weapons training drills, right? Getting ready for this revolution that he's going to lead them on. But instead, Jesus gives them his word and he gives them bread. 
He passes that out, and he gives his disciples this crash course training in, in bread distribution. That's the training that they get, right? One commentator says that, that it is clear from this account that Jesus will not march to the populist drumbeat. Here in Mark 6, he disavows the zealot model of liberation, but he does not disavow liberation. He doesn't disavow liberation. A different kind of liberation is what he's about. When Jesus preaches his gospel word and gives out the bread, what, what is he saying? What is he saying? What, what does the bread mean? What does the bread mean for these people? His original audience, this crowd that's gathered. Now, for you and I in our culture, we know what bread means, right? Bread means carbs. <laughs> bread means not keto. That's what bread means. Bread means all of the whole 30 warning sirens are now alarming in our brains. That's, that's what bread means to us in our culture. But, uh, you know, the deep symbolic meaning, if you will, right? But in ancient times, when food options were not quite as plentiful, and that's an understatement, when, it was not, when there was not certainty that food was going to be there when you wanted food to be there for you, bread meant life. Bread meant life. It was symbolic of life. In other words, Jesus is saying to the people here, I am a revolutionary leader. But other revolutionary leaders come and they bring only death. But I come and I bring you life. I come bringing life. And Jesus teaches and he passes out bread. He's pointing to the life-giving nature of his gospel word. This isn't the first or only time that, that Jesus makes this connection between his, his word and bread. Right? And when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, in, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, we read this. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus says in John six twenty seven. And and continuing down, skipping down to verses 32 and 33, this is all together here. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is a hunger, deep within you, that, that mere bread, mere food, can never satisfy. There's a, there's a hunger that is, that is deep within you, that if it is not addressed, you will starve forever. There's that hunger deep within you. All your revolutions will only, will only end in destruction and devastation unless you address and deal with this hunger. There's a deeper hunger, and only Jesus can satisfy it. Only he can fully satisfy it. Only he can fill it within you. You can try to fill that void with physical comfort and the pursuit of physical comfort. You can try to fill it with the the affirmation of your peers, their approval, their support of you, how much they like you. You can try to fill it with the, the false security of having a bigger bank account and more success materialistically. But in those attempts to quench this spiritual hunger, you will only find within you a bottomless, insatiable pit in your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy that deeper hunger within you. 
Only He can bring the true liberation that you really need, you desperately need. And that is what Jesus is is saying and showing in this, this miraculous feeding. It is not the revolution anyone was expecting, but it is exactly the revolution that everyone desperately needs. Mark also highlights for us the unexpected revolutionaries that Jesus works through in this passage. The unexpected revolutionaries that Jesus works through. Um, This is another very important point that the text is making here. That Jesus works through some impossibly limited and weak, unqualified, inadequate people. Right? Give yourself a pat on the back, right? Um, this is made apparent as the scene unfolds here. Uh, the best comparison I can kind of give to like, experience, like what this experience might have been like uh, in, 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 kinda in our culture and context would be uh, if you've ever gone to like a big Christian conference, right? If you've ever gone to like the Gospel Coalition Conference or, or Together for the Gospel or a Passion Conference or something like that, right? Thousands of people gathered together. We're, we're, we're singing together. We're, we're here preaching from the Word of God together, Right? And, and it's this big packed out conference, it's going all day, and, and what happens, like those conferences are usually in, in big cities and downtown areas, in these big arenas, and then surrounded by those arenas are what? Tons of restaurants, just restaurants everywhere. And so they're going through the schedule and it comes time, it's noon, right? Or it's, it's five o'clock, and what do they say? Lunch on your own, dinner on your own, right? Be back here at 1.30, be back here at 7 p.m., you're on your own, we'll see you in a bit. Go get some food, right? That's kind of what we would expect. And like you, you see that, it's, if you go to one of those conferences, it's on the agenda. Lunch on your own. Dinner on your own. You, you're planning on it. You're expecting it. And, and that's exactly what the disciples were thinking should have been on the agenda here. Dinner on your own, right? We're in the middle of nowhere, Jesus. It's getting late. You've been teaching for quite a while. Right? It, 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 we're going into the night here. It's getting late. It's dark. You need to send these people away, right? Let them go back into the towns, kind of in the area here. Get some food. Take a break. Dinner on your own. It's a perfectly reasonable suggestion at this point in the day, out in the middle of nowhere. But Jesus deliberately gives them an absolutely irrational command on purpose, right? He, he says, you give them something to eat. He says, you feed them, right? Emphasis on the you, feed them. And of course, this strikes a nerve with the disciples who are already tired and hungry themselves, not to make excuses for their response here. The other gospel accounts seem to kind of maybe tone down the disciples' response to Jesus just a little bit, but Mark is a little bit more just deliberately honest and raw about their response back to Jesus. A little bit more honest about the sarcasm. If you look at verse 37, right? He, he, he answered them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples, they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Right? Like this is like, needs to be read. You need to imagine in your brain you know Star Wars, like the original Star Wars kind of films? Like, imagine, like, the tone of the young, angsty Luke Skywalker, right, in Dagobah, like, talking to Yoda. Yoda's telling him to do some stuff that's like, this is crazy, that's impossible, right? That's, that's his response. He's just, like, whining, it's impossible all the time. You're asking us to do the impossible, Jesus. What are we even doing here? This is kind of their response at this moment. 
It's disrespectful, most certainly. Do you expect us to magically pull out of our tunic like a year's salary, Jesus, and walk into some town and buy bread for everybody so they can eat? That's what they're saying. That's how they're saying it to Jesus. But Jesus' whole point is that this task is absolutely impossible for them to do on their own. He's purposefully giving them more than they can handle. But wait, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God never gives you more than you can handle? No, the Bible does not say that. (laughs) That comes from like an internet meme or a greeting card or something, but it's not the Bible. Actually, the Bible shows you again and again that God certainly gives people more than they can handle just so that it might bring you to the absolute end of yourself and move you to more completely and wholly devote yourself, rely, depend upon Jesus. Not on your strength and your ability. He absolutely gives people more than they can handle all the time. He's showing the disciples just how limited they are and how completely beyond them the mission is that he's called them to. You're not going to be able to do this, is what he's teaching them. Verse, verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish, right? 15 to 20,000 people here. What do you got on you? Oh, five loaves and two fish. Yeah, that'll do, um, right? Jesus is trying to make it really obvious. You guys can't do this. You guys can't make this happen. But I can. Trust me. Rely on me. Believe in me. Let me work through you. Think about what the disciples have experienced and seen to this point in Mark's gospel. They've seen demons cast out of people. They've seen lepers cleansed. They've seen paralytics miraculously healed and and walking. They've seen a raging storm made immediately peaceful by the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. They've seen uh, they've seen a, a little girl raised from the dead, right? And they've just returned themselves from going on this mission two by two and seeing Jesus work in these miraculous ways through them. But guess what? They're still not getting it. They, they still don't get it. We're in good company because we still don't get it. That, that's the point that Mark makes. Not only, not only after the miraculous feeding of the five thousand, but even after Jesus walks on water in the middle of another storm. Later in the chapter here, right? Jesus dismisses the disciples after this miraculous feeding, all right? Probably, again, because he doesn't want them to be a part of, hey, let's make him king right now and make him our revolutionary leader because they're probably a little bit on board with that too, right? And so he dismisses them and sends them to go to the other side, the lake, to Bethsaida. And then he goes, he dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on a mountain to pray by himself, And Jesus sees the disciples late in the night struggling to row against the waves of the storm. He sees them out there on the lake, and they're they're, they're having a hard time making any progress. We read this in verses 48 through 52. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. 
And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's about 3 a.m., fourth watch in the night, 3 to 6 a.m., and Jesus comes walking out to them on the sea. And Mark says he meant to pass by them. In other words, he, he, he meant not to just walk to them and jump in the boat initially. He intentionally meant to walk by them, past them. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just go to them and help them? Why would, why would he want to pass by them? Well, Jesus is, is once again pointing back to the Old Testament. At Exodus chapter 33, Moses has this, this um, uh, encounter with God, and, and he's asking God, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds to Moses in Exodus 33, verses 19 through 23. He says, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious and and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Jesus is passing by that they might see and behold his glory. They might see and behold his glory. But again, they don't get it. They don't get it right away. They, they just don't catch on. Because you, you know they don't get it, because what is their reaction is the reaction to worship Jesus? Wow, the glory of God has passed by. No, the reaction is to scream like teenage girls. We're terrified, right? We just saw a ghost. What is going on? And, and Jesus calls out to reassure him. But what he says is also meant to display his glory. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, that doesn't seem real obvious to us in our English translation, but in the Greek, it is I, it is, is the Greek, ego eimi which is I am. I am. This is not a random pronunciation of of identity here by Jesus. Just happen to say, I am, right? No, this is intentional. He's intentionally identifying himself with the God who reveals himself to Moses as I am. I am. Right? does the same thing later in, in John's gospel. Before Abraham was, I am. He's very clearly proclaiming his identity that he is the Lord. He's declaring his glory. It's on display. And Jesus gets in the boat. Immediately the wind stops. The disciples are completely shocked. How could this be? Right? Like they've never seen anything amazing from Jesus before. Wow. Right? Completely shocked. Completely in awe. Not because they get it, but because they don't get it. Because they don't get it. Mark says they were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. This is what I find truly amazing here and really encouraging for for me and hopefully for you as well. These hard-hearted, disrespectful disciples who, who are simply not getting it again and again. The glory of God, God is on display right in front of their faces and they just can't add it up and put it together and recognize it. Now, if, if you or I were in Jesus' position, what would you do with these disciples, right? What would I do? I'd say, take a hike, right? I mean, 
How many times do I have to try to tell you this? Like, you're not getting it. See ya. Peace out, right? We're done. Um, That's not what Jesus does. And Jesus doesn't need them. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He is all sufficient in himself. He doesn't need people to do anything. He doesn't need us. I, I mean, and yet, how does Jesus choose to work here in this feeding of the 5,000? How does he choose to feed this multitude gathered around him? He doesn't need us, and yet he chooses to use and work through people to accomplish this miracle. If you think about it, Jesus could have fed the, 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 the crowd in any way he, he chose to. I mean, he could have walked through the, the crowd like he's Professor Dumbledore, just waving his hands magically in the air. There are these trays of gorgeous, decadent food, right? Right before their faces, just falling from the sky. Uh, he could have done it like that, but that's not what he does. Look at what he does. Jesus, first off, works with the food that the disciples do have, right? The, the, the people gathered there do have five loaves and two fish, right? Five loaves and two fish. That's completely and utterly inadequate for trying to feed fifteen to 20,000 people. That's not going to do it. Not going to cut it. But that's what Jesus uses. Their food. Their food. And then it's only as the disciples go out with their inadequate food that it is multiplied. And then it's multiplied. And only as they go out does Jesus actually meet the need of the crowd. His power is only manifested through these inadequate disciples. This is a foretaste of how Jesus is going to continue working through these guys the rest of their lives. It's a foretaste of how he works in and through his people today. Jesus is telling us right, right here in this text, the mission I've called you to is so beyond you. You are completely inadequate for the task that I have called you to. It will take a miracle. It's impossible. It will take a miracle for what I want to do through you to happen. It will take a miracle. If you look around, you realize that God is, is calling you, Christian, to go make disciples. Not to go fill seats in churches. And we are, we are to gather. We need that time. Hebrews 10 is clear about that. To be encouraged. And, and, but the point of being encouraged and, and brought together is so we might grow in him and be sent out to make more disciples. That they might be brought in and encouraged and filled up and sent out to continue the mission of God. Right? If you look around, you realize that he's calling you to make disciples. To share his gospel with people who don't want to hear it. A lot of people who are hostile to it. It will take a miracle for them to listen. It will take a miracle for them to believe. Parents, he's calling you to make disciples of your own children. Do you realize the call that he's put on your life? To recognize that that even though your children are a gift from God, they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And and it's your call. It's been placed primarily on you as parents. And if you read the scriptures, an even more primary call on fathers where they are present in households 
to take a special responsibility for the discipleship of your children. To make disciples. To pour the gospel into their lives so that one day your children's primary identity to you is not son or daughter, but it's brother or sister standing beside you in eternal glory. You need to understand that it will take a miracle. It will take a miracle for that to happen. You and I, we are completely inadequate, right? We are, we are completely unqualified to the task that we have been called to. We're, 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 it's so beyond us. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, right? You are to realize Here's what, you're going, here's what you should do, right? You're to realize that the, the, the coming to this understanding is exactly God's plan. It's exactly God's plan that Jesus has chosen to manifest his glory and his power by working through inadequate, unqualified, limited people. And so you don't abdicate your call because it seems overwhelming or impossible. You don't abdicate your call. You don't quit because it seems difficult You press into Jesus and you walk by faith. You trust in him, right? You you go to your neighbor, your coworker, and and you you share the gospel. You befriend them genuinely and you share the gospel. You connect them to community, invite them into fellowship with other believers, and you share the gospel. Knowing that you can't make anything happen in their life. You can't make them hear it. You can't make them listen to it. You can't make them respond to it in faith. But he is more than able. You continue to pour the gospel into your children, into your toddlers, into your teenagers, knowing that you can't make them cling to Jesus, right, in saving faith, but that he is more than able. He's more than able. And because we know Jesus, because you're in the Word, and if you're not, you need to be in the Word. This is one of the reasons you need to be in the Word. There are a lot of reasons you must be in the Word. You, because you're in the Word, you're constantly being reminded of how Jesus works in the lives of so many. How He continues to work through inadequate people to bring about miraculous ends. Transformed lives. People renewed in saving faith. Not because the people who are sharing the gospel were so equipped and qualified, but because there's power in the gospel word. There's power in the Holy Spirit. There's power in Jesus' name. He works powerfully through imperfect, inadequate, limited people. And so you go to do, to follow the call that he's put on your life, expectant, expectant that Jesus will perform a miracle. I found this quote secondhand, and I apologize that I could not track down its author, but it's too good to not share. Um, It is not God's intention, uh, this person says, that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, 
They are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. Only the inadequate are adequate in Jesus' mind. Only when you know you're inadequate and you go anyway. Right? You go anyway. Only when you know it's going to take a miracle, but you, you go in faith and you, you do. You, you follow the call. You do it anyway. Only then does he begin to work through you. Well, finally, Mark points us to the unexpected act that ignites Jesus' revolution. Like all revolutions begin with a, a revolutionary act, right? Maybe it's a shot heard around the world. It's an assassination. You invade the city. You storm the fortress. Some, something happens, right? Revolutions start with acts of violence. And so does Jesus' revolution. So did Jesus' revolution. And this is where you say, wait a minute. I thought you said Jesus comes as a revolutionary leader who doesn't bring death. He brings life, right? To which I say, yes. I absolutely said that. Life for you, life for me. Mark hints at the act that ignites the revolution. You find the hint in verse 41. Jesus here, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Jesus said a blessing. And he broke, right? He said a blessing and broke. Literally in the Greek, it says he blessed and broke. He blessed and broke. A little later in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, we see these two verbs together again. Mark 14, verse 22. And they were eating. He took bread after, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He blessed and broke. He blessed and broke. This Text, Mark 6, is pointing to that text, Mark 14. Jesus is saying to everyone who's coming around him in that crowd and trying to make him king, you want a new Moses, I know that, right? Who will feed you bread in the wilderness. You want a Moses who will liberate you from oppression. You want a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new David. Well, I'm not just the new Moses, I'm the ultimate Moses. And I've come to bring about the ultimate exodus I'm not here to simply liberate you from political oppression for a time. I'm here to liberate you once and for all from sin and death. How? Jesus says, I will bless and break. I will bless and break. And that's exactly what he did. On the cross, looking out to the people gathered around him, the people responsible for his death, those executing him, people rejecting him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He blessed, and then he broke. He died. He blessed, and then he broke. And he did so willingly as your substitute in that moment. Jesus was torn to pieces on the cross that you might be made whole in him. That's what ignites the revolution. He blesses you and then was broken for you. He says, I save you, right? I I save you. I've lived the life you should have lived. I've died the death you should have died in your place. And he has been raised, accomplishing that, the liberating victory over sin and death once and for all. You want liberation in your life? You want liberation? The way to have it isn't to make yourself stronger. The way to have it isn't to work harder, to do better. The way to liberation is to see what Jesus has done for you. And to simply cry out to him, Lord, pre- please forgive me. Right? Please forgive me and accept me because of what Christ 
has done in my place. That will ignite a revolution in your life. That will lead to transformation, to a newness of life. It will lead to Jesus becoming your good shepherd. If you've already trusted in Christ, right, but you find yourself just overwhelmed at the call that he's put on you, overwhelmed at the call to to make disciples of your neighbors, of your coworkers, of the children in your own home, and you're overwhelmed by the mission he's called you to, remember, only the inadequate are adequate. Only the inadequate are adequate. You are exactly the kind of revolutionary Jesus chooses to work through. So look to him. Look to him. Look to what he's done for you. Cling to him. See what, how he has faithfully worked throughout the ages. And trust and believe and move forward expecting him to work a miracle. Now, as we do each week, we're going to take the bread. Right? We're going to share the bread and share the cup. And we're going to remember the act that ignited Jesus' revolution. Jesus blessed and he broke. So we partake of the bread and the cup, remembering his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, so we might be made whole. Believers, you're invited as we continue to worship to, to come and share in this meal, breaking off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with string or twine. If you're not a believer in Christ... This is an opportunity for you to take hold of the liberation you so desperately need to take Christ in faith. Not to share in the elements, the symbol, but to take hold of the real thing. To receive the true bread of life, Jesus Christ himself as your Savior. Pastors and prayer responders will be over here in the back to pray with you. We'd love to visit with you in any way. Pray for you however we can. May we rejoice, though, in our limitations and in our inadequacy, and, we, and as we press in to Jesus and move forward by faith to see him work through us in miraculous ways as he continues to make disciples for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your, your graciousness and your, 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 your glory on display in your word. Lord, help it to, to sink deep within us how how it's you who does the miracle. Um, How it's you who makes disciples through us. And may we trust in you. May we see your faithfulness in the pages of your word. May we see your faithfulness in in the testimony of our own lives of faith. Lord, may we trust you to step forward in faith, to follow the call that you've given each and every one of us who calls ourselves Christian to go and make disciples your glory. Lord, would you move in and through us? Would you bring about a revolution within our own hearts that that leads us to to stop abdicating the call upon our lives and to take the responsibility, the call that you've given us with joy, with great faith, knowing that you are faithful, you are able, and may we go forward expecting you to work a miracle in the lives of many for your glory, for their good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.